This week we're talking about big data, which is a bit of a buzzword in science at the moment. Since the advent of computers and the internet, collecting huge quantities of data about everything from finances to Facebook likes has become easier than ever, and people are asking what they can do with all this data. It contains so much useful information, but this information is hidden in hard-to-find patterns in the data. And the chemistry world is no different. We have amassed huge data sets about DNA, chemical structures and chemical properties, all full of patterns that could reveal new information about the things they describe. This week's topic, cheminformatics, is all about how to extract the useful information from the gigabytes of noise. This week we're talking about a whole different approach to chemistry. In the previous episode, we talked about running simulations and complex calculations to determine the properties of chemical systems, but today we're going to use big data and machine learning to turn the huge amounts of information we already know about chemistry into useful rules which we can apply to all sorts of chemical systems. So I've heard a lot about machine learning. It's used in financial analysis, language translation, artificial intelligence, all sorts. The idea is to find ways to teach a computer how to work out something without explicitly telling it how to. Normally, how this works is you provide it with lots of examples of questions with their correct answers, put them through some code, and hope that it can use the information it has learned to answer new questions, perhaps those which we didn't know the answer to. Exactly. So to try and use an example, say... David, you don't know anything about dog breeds at all. That would be accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but so say I gave you 10,000 photographs of dogs and I told you which breed each photo was of, you might be able to work out for yourself how to tell them all apart. You might learn some rules and what combinations of features corresponds to each breed. And the reason this is a super useful method of teaching is A, you can teach very complicated and subtle rules quickly and easily, and B, that apart from having a few examples of correct answers, even I, the teacher, don't need to know what the rules are, because you're working it out for yourself. Yeah, okay, I see how that would work, but how could that work for chemistry? Okay, so say I want to find out how soluble a molecule is, which I might do if I was designing a new drug, for example. Yeah, so that's how much you can dissolve in a litre of water before, before the solution becomes saturated. Right, exactly. Uh, of course, there's some ways to roughly predict whether it will be soluble or not. Uh, I guess maybe looking at how many polar groups it has or long fatty chains. Right, exactly. But it turns out there are a huge number of characteristics of a molecule that come together to cause it to have exactly the solubility that it has, such as its size, functional groups, how floppy it is, how the atoms are connected, the ways in which water molecules can arrange themselves around it. The list goes on and on and on. The problem is, the way all these properties of the molecule interact is very complicated. And even if you're a super experienced chemist, it's more or less impossible just to look at a molecule and be able to say exactly how soluble it is. So it's a much more complicated problem than it initially seems. So maybe we can use a computer to capture these subtle effects. If you show the computer a load of molecules with their solubility values from experiments people have already done, maybe the computer can find patterns and correlations and be able to work out what factors contribute in which way to solubility. Then we can use that knowledge to predict the solubility of other molecules, 
without having to do nasty experiments. Which is all experiments. <laughs> <laughs> What's more, once you've done the learning, you can predict things super fast. If you're a pharmaceutical company, you might want to know the solubility of literally millions of molecules. So this would be much, much faster than testing each individually in the lab. Okay, sounds interesting. Question, does it work? That's exactly what three researchers at the University of Cambridge wanted to find out. So they set a challenge to all chemical data scientists out there. They published a paper called Solubility Challenge. Can you predict solubilities of 32 molecules using a database of 100 reliable measurements? And the challenge was as follows. The researchers had done very precise experiments on 132 small organic molecules with all kinds of functional groups, shapes and sizes to find out their solubilities. Then they published the solubilities of only 100 of them, leaving 32 mystery values. The challenge was then to find ways to use the data on the 100 molecules for which you know the answer to teach a computer how to predict the values for the remaining 32. Okay, so the computer looks at each molecule, it looks at all its properties like its shape, its size, groups, atoms, etc. Even stuff that you might not think is related to solubility and tries to find patterns in this data and uses them to build a model for predicting solubility. You can use that model to predict the missing 32 values. Okay, so how do they do? Well, five months and more than 100 submissions later, they published their findings. And the results were, to me at least, pretty surprising. Okay. The, the winner guessed only 7 out of the 32 with any decent accuracy. 7! Seven. 7, Tim. That is, that is rubbish, actually. <laughs> that is really bad. <laughs> I guess that just goes to show how difficult this problem is and how much work there is left to do. Exactly, and it might also show that more complex ways of describing a molecule are needed. Although they didn't do very well in this challenge, machine learning has had a huge impact on chemistry overall. People have used it to predict molecular energies with high precision, uh, to speed up simulations, to calculate the correct interactions between molecules, and lots more. Right, and one problem is generating enough training data to be useful. Here, that involves using known experimental values, but other people have clever ways of getting at it. Uh, have you ever done one of those recapture things on a computer to prove that you're not a bot? Yeah, yeah. So when they ask you to uh, pick pictures with road signs in or spell words for them. Exactly. Uh, normally, the capture actually only knows the answer to half of the questions it's asking you. And the other half is essentially asking you to generate training data for some machine learning algorithm uh, back at Google. It's not random that lots of these ask you to pick pictures with road signs or pictures that include cars and things. Google can then use this training data in order to build computer algorithms that can recognize signs in other vehicles, perhaps for a self-driving car or something like that. One of the cool things about machine learning is that it is surprisingly easy to make some simple algorithms of your own. All you need is some training data and some creativity, Tim. <laughs> One fantastic place to start is a website called Kaggle.com. This is a website full of data scientists ranging from beginners to experts looking at interesting data sets. For absolute beginners, they have tutorials for how to look for patterns using Excel, as well as in programming languages like Python and R, even if you've never used them before. It's a really good place to get started with data science, and there are some chemistry data sets on there too. Kaggle has a huge range of interesting data sets and hosts competitions asking users to find algorithms for looking at real scientific data to make real scientific discoveries, often with prize money too. 
I looked just now and there's a competition up with a prize of $100,000 for the winning team. So if you get really good, you can earn some money for yourself as well. It's a nice little plug for Kaggle. It is good. Kaggle will be thrilled. They're on Twitter as well, so we can tag them. At Kaggle. Data science and chemistry is a relatively new concept, and so we wanted to talk to an expert to help us understand the details. And lucky enough, we were able to speak to Professor Jeremy Frey from the University of Southampton, who is an expert on all things data. Professor Frey, thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, one area of science that you're interested in is called e-science. Could you explain to us what that's all about? Yeah, so I, I'm, uh, I'm a physical chemist doing both, somewhat, already somewhat unusually in doing both experimental and theoretical work. And as a result, I was familiar with the issues around uh, doing experiments to collect data and then doing things to process that data and then trying to build models to check whether that data is valid. So I'd been involved with the whole chain of the way in which digital and computers has been changing the way that we do chemistry. And in the early 2000s, the UK um, started a program they called eScience, which elsewhere is called CyberScience, and was about using computers to aid scientific research and discovery. And some of that is about using big computers to process large amounts of data to do interesting simulations. Some of it is to crunch lots of data. And other parts of that are actually to aid the, the collection and undertaking of research itself. So that really was my view of e-science. It's about how to make computers work usefully with people and to do better experiments. So earlier on in the podcast, we were talking about the solubility challenge. It seems to us that they didn't do very well. Why is it such a hard problem? So I agree with you. Yes, they didn't, don't do brilliant. It shows how difficult a task it is to predict solubility. So there are a number of factors here. The first is that even in a carefully curated data set like they chose, there are still experimental issues. And there are issues about how well can you measure those solubilities. And so there are uncertainties that were not that well described for that data. So maybe one of the reasons why you can't do that well is that actually the values are not that accurate. So that's something that needs to be assessed. The other problem with solu solubility, I was saying, is a, is a serious problem um, and difficult because you're taking something in the solid state and putting it into dissolving it in a liquid. There's a complicated model of solvents around the, the molecular units in the liquid, which is bad enough. But in the solid, we've got an extended system. It's a crystal usually. And that is much more delicate in understanding the relationship between the energetics and the structure. So we are asking an, imp an almost impossible question and yet a really important one. Um, so there are multiple steps to this thing, this particular type of modeling, which suggests that you, you'll only likely be able to do so well. And beyond that, we would have to use much more complex models to try and predict what is essentially predicting the, the structure of the solid state to then project, predict, predict the solubility of those particular solid state structures. So solubility values, I guess, is one kind of chemical data. Um, what other kinds of chemical data are there out there that we can use? Well, there's an awful lot of data out there. The problem is there's an awful lot of data that we don't necessarily know exactly what it is. Um, so there's an awful lot of data and it can be hard to find. And then there's data that you can find and it says it's something, but you don't really know how accurate it is. And then there's less data that's been really nicely looked after. Uh, for example, if I want to know what uh, a crystal, particular crystal structures to use um, um, and what's going on in um, for different molecules, what f structures they might form, then uh, there are some very nice databases out there that where have been thoroughly checked. 
there's thermodynamic data which has often been checked and rate constant data that may have been checked spectroscopic data which by the nature of its analysis often um, you can get some pretty good idea whether it's good quality or not so there's a lot of data out there but it can be quite hard to find okay so a lot of the data is just too disorganized to use or yes to use easily to use easily that's right so you have to track back and try and get quality assessments of the data and that's one of the things that the modeling itself has to do which maybe if the experiments have been done differently and recorded differently we wouldn't but we have to use the models to assess some of the quality of the data and that can mend you in a bit of a circular argument if you're not careful so if you came across a large amount of data about some chemical system what sort of ways could you use that data to turn it into useful information Okay, so normally you're trying to bring these data together. So the first thing is you try and integrate the data to make sure you're, you're handling, that you are talking about the same molecule. So stereochemistry and other things produces all sorts of issues, tautomers and so on, mean that you do have to be very careful about making sure your data is consistent and uh, actually is about the same thing. But then you have a whole series of interesting things about the structure of the molecule, the properties of the molecule, at which point you can then decide whether or not for the things you're interested in, is it a Appropriate, more appropriate to do some quantum modeling or classical simulations, or in one way or another, you work out how to predict, how, how to calculate easily calculatable properties about this molecule, such that you could then see whether you can make a, a relatively straightforward regression models, a statistical model, all the way through to these modern sort of neural network models, where the input is the relatively easy to get hold of information. And the output is, say, the biological activity or the materials property. And then you come up with a sort of prediction and hopefully some sort of likelihood the prediction is valid. Um, for these more complicated properties. And that would then su suggest to you which molecules you might actually go and make and measure that haven't been made before, or it has been too expensive to measure before. You know, drug companies might be sitting on libraries with millions of compounds in it, but they can't afford to run a screening test of a million compounds against some expensive biological target. So they have to decide which ones might be the most appropriate. So the idea is that you do these computational calculations that are very cheap on lots of molecules, then you feed them into some sort of machine learning algorithm. And that tells you maybe what the best molecules to actually go out and synthesize in the lab is. Is that right? Yes. And that also, hopefully, you gain, not only does it just simply tell you that, but you hopefully can find out what factors have been important. Then you may well do a more, on a few cases where you have now think you've understood what's going on, more detailed parallel calculations in terms of high-level quantum or big simulations on very specific molecules to really test the mechanisms. So, for example, if you discover that the uh, what's really important about the molecule is its polarity has to be in a certain range for it to be able to be absorbed in to be a drug molecule, that gives you potentially gives you an idea of the mechanism that uh, it must be attaching to some part of a membrane or something like that. Uh, I'm being very simplistic here. But if that's the case, you then might want to run some simulations, detailed simulations, looking at the binding of those particular molecules. But you can't currently, the computation currently is so expensive on that, you couldn't do it on a million molecules. You can only do it on a few selected ones. And again, your statistical models can be used to suggest which ones you should be working on to gain maximum insight. So basically, you can use it as a filter to narrow down the search range for your experiment. Absolutely. It's a filter, but then also the properties of the filter um, that you've made that gives this effect themselves tell you something about what factors may be important and therefore what sort of subsequent inquiry you should make. 
So we've talked a bit about machine learning on this podcast. It's come up on our previous two episodes as a technique that will change other areas of science as well. Do you think it has the capacity to change everything? I think it is going to change everything, but it's only one part of what's changing everything. The other part of um, what I would prefer, prefer to call augmented intelligence rather than artificial intelligence is uh, reasoning systems and so on. So you may do your, your machine learning on data sets, but that hopefully is done not just to produce a black box, but to produce insight. That insight helps you to produce systems that you would get rules and reasoning and so on. So there are other parts to the augmented intelligence system. It also is really important to use machine idea in terms of driving up the reliability and efficiency of undertaking some experiments. There are many experiments that are much more variable than they could be because we're forced to do it in them by hand. And if we can get the robotic systems to do them, we have a chance of uh, getting much better reproducibility, much faster scanning of different parts of the parameter space. So we can do more um, effective and more accurate and more reproducible high-value experiments. Uh, and in my picture of um, some of the way in which machine learning, artificial intelligence, and so on are going to impact is that we do those experiments. We then run some simulations because even with the increasing amount of data we get from automation and robotics, we're still far short of the amounts of data that, for example, if you're learning, if uh, Google is learning to play Go or chess or whatever, the number of games it plays is far greater than the number of experiments that we would normally do. So to amplify that data, we can use the simulations. But that creates the greater set of data, which we can use some of these machine learning and reasoning techniques on to derive some insight, which we then predict new experiments to do, design those experiments, put them back into this loop here, and see whether we're converging. And if we're converging, then we're probably gaining some knowledge. And if we're not, then we realize we probably need to change some of the assumptions we're making. And so, just as a final question, where do you see this area heading in the next 10, 20 years? How will our way of working in the lab be different to now? I think we're going to have uh, much more efficient uh, ways of setting up and communicating with experiments as a start, uh, using voice and hand descriptions and more visual descriptions of experiments. We'll have far more automation in labs um, so that we'll collect much higher quality data. We'll have much more efficient schemes to making sure that data is transferred into notebooks and organized and kept much better so that we're much, much able to be much more collaborative with the data. We'll have much more intertwined physical experiments with computational support. So modeling will go on in parallel. And we'll have a lot more data from which we can attempt to do data-led extraction. But equally, well, we'll be much better at running models that have been developed from theory to see whether or not these actually can match to the data that we've collected. And uh, we will develop hypotheses through data extraction and through modeling. Those hypotheses will lead to directly to more interesting experiments, which will lead to more interesting data. And we'll have a much more tightly coupled system. So I do see the Star Trek lab of the future as being a far more efficient and productive place to work in. Bob, uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been really interesting. I've enjoyed it a lot. And that brings us to the end of the episode. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, please feel free to ask them either on Twitter or Facebook, at TheoryPod. Yes, and if you want an insight into the life of a PhD student at Oxford, follow us on Instagram at Theoretically Speaking Podcast. And tell all your friends. <laughs> <laughs> so all that's left is to thank the TMCS and EPSRC for supporting this podcast, and make sure to tune in again next week at the same time.